Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, December 10th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this video or podcast is not investment advice. I'm not authorized to give individual investment advice. This is for informational purposes only. Please do your own due diligence, your own research. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, before I get into the slides, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, the energy markets that continue, specifically oil, it's continuing to slip. Um, we're basically down about 10 bucks over the last week. And so I'm going to give my view on it. I'm, I have said before many times during previous pullbacks that we can expect volatility in commodity markets. Um, I'm still have the view that we are in an energy crisis. Um, there will be periods where price will fluctuate. Like I said, volatility. Um, do I think oil can go lower? Absolutely. I mean, we're looking at the indicators I'm looking at is a pretty big recession is coming in the U S. Um, it's without a doubt you look at whether just about any criteria you want to look at. So um, will that affect demand? Yes, to a certain extent. But again, we're looking at not necessarily this energy crisis being driven by demand, but supply. And so I go back to, you know, everybody, when something, a position goes against someone or the price drops of something that you're uh, have an interest in, you, the, the view is, or the desire is to have an explanation so that you can, you know, make sense of it in your mind. And that's not necessarily, you know, what I do. I'm not involved in the short term. I don't, I mean, in any day, hour, week, month, I mean, these things can move around quite a bit. Uh, for different reasons. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, you want reasons? Okay, I can give reasons. Um, end of the year positioning, a lot of people made a lot of money in oil. So liquidating um, positions at the end of the year, the locking gains. Um, liquidity is way down. We've showed that in the, in the futures markets. Um, sediment is negative because of the anticipated recessions that we have in the EU and the US that's happening now, along with the fits and starts of the Chinese reopening, um, the stuffing of the supply channel by Russia uh, to before the sanctions went on it. Um, I just can keep going. There's all kinds of news items that have been shown to be the reason why something's happening. But my view is still the same, right? I mean, unless you have like, I anticipate that, you know, we're going to be in a recession in the U.S., but I don't see some of the things like we had the great financial crisis, right? We don't have a house. Uh, we had a housing bubble. We don't have the banking system in the same position as we did. We're not, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not convinced that we're going to have like this super big recession. We're going to have a recession. Um, and again, you know, liquidity is being removed from the market. By the Fed, 95 to $100 billion a month. They're raising rates at a, at a, at a fastest 
pace that they've ever done. And so those things are going to continue to feed into and slow down the economy. I mean, the housing market is basically, you know, it's on its back. Um, you look at uh, purchasing managers index for new orders, all these things are all, you know, heading for a recession. So I think that this is, uh, there's negative sentiment and low liquidity. This has a lot to do with it. But I go back to my, my thesis. No one's really making the investments necessary to if for the medium and long term. Um, the SPR situation of trying to uh, help the market is drying up now. Uh, China is, like I said, in fits and starts reopening now, uh, whether... I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's not going to something that's just going to happen. Snap your fingers and it happens, but it's going to happen over a period of months, which is going to bring back significant demand. Um, and then you have, you know, we need to really figure out what's going to happen with the sanctions on Russia, um, and also, you know, you still have the depletion of six percent a year that's not being addressed with new investment. There is new investment happening, but you will note that even more dollars are being spent than last year, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're having more activity because of the rise in costs in the oil field services sector. So you're getting less for your money, you're getting less activity for more money because of the inflation in costs of the oil field services provider. So I think, you know, um, I'm not a trader, uh, some people are very adept at trading and using technical analysis. I've tried to do that in the past. I have a view. Uh, do I think oil could drop to WTI into the 60s? Yeah. Could it drop into the 50s? Yeah, it could. But I don't see it staying there just because, um, as we're going to show some charts coming up, that the all-in costs for a lot of the oil fields are substantially above that. So spending time below uh you know 55 50 dollars a barrel uh you know unless you have like a great depression or something and i just don't see that happening and then you have to ask yourself as far as liquidity goes how close are we to the end of this cycle fed cycle of tightening are we closer to the start or closer to the end so i suggest we're probably closer to the end um you know, a lot of people, I don't believe that they're going to hold rates as high for longer as a lot of people think. I think the economy is going to rapidly, the indicators are going to rapidly deteriorate. Um, I've heard some other people talk about, you know, we need to see uh, new claims for unemployment get up around to around $400,000 or 400000 you know, a week. Um, and that's typically a period where they reverse. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a fortune teller. What I'm saying is, is that, you know, if you're new to investing or you're new, you just woke up and decided that, well, commodity markets or resource markets look like a place I want to invest, you may want to hold off for right now because a lot of the big moves that we captured over the last 18 months are now being digested. I mean, we've been up two years in a row and energy done fairly well. And so it's due for a pullback, right? It doesn't mean the secular trend is over with. But this is part of the problem, right? That a lot of people have. They have shiny objects. We talk about uranium. Who even cares about uranium anymore? But the market is 
from the fundamentals is the most bullish it's been in, you know, 20 years. But uh, nobody, you know, because it's not moving, because the market's not doing what people want it to do, then they get, have a negative view towards it. So I look at things from the medium and long term in these markets. Um, I have the ability to ride it out. I mean, I bought a lot of these positions for me personally. It's easier to ride out because, uh, you know, bought these positions at a lower level. Now, some people would say in the comments, well, why don't you just sell and then you can buy back later? That's what you should do if that's what you think. The question is, is when do you buy back? Okay, I'm not a trader. And if you look on the Forbes 400 wealthiest people, there's not very many traders on there. Okay, you do. I'm a speculator and an investor, and I have a view based on a thesis I put together. I revisit that thesis. Short-term price fluctuations don't do not come into that calculation for me personally. So for other people, they do. And I know people want an answer and they, a lot of people, so I've had people, you know, that I dialogue with, they'll say, that's a cop out. You're just copping out, you know, you're wedded to the position. Well, again, this is not investment advice. This is what I'm doing. This is how I think about it. Everybody's different. Okay. So if I bought the positions two years ago at a 10th of what they're selling for now, I'm not going, you know, I, I feel like two, three years down the road, I'm going to have even higher prices. And that's when I'm going to want to take my profits instead of selling and then trying to figure out when do I get back in? Okay. So that's, that seems a little convoluted for some people, but that was what works for me. Everybody's temperament and view on how they want to enter and exit positions is, you know, the, is different. Now I will say this for some people that if you're new to this market and you bought near the tops, then, you know, incurring a 30 or 40% decline in the short to medium term, three to six month period is painful. And so if it's painful for you, if you don't want to endure it or can't endure it, if it's causing you distress, then you should sell. You should sell your positions to you no longer have distress. That's what I always advise people. That's the only advice I really give on this. If you get into a position First of all, you should know what you what you own, and many people don't know what they own. They're just following people on social media or YouTube. But if you truly have done the analysis and you simply cannot deal with the decline because it's causing you physical distress or mental distress, then you just sell the position till that's no longer the, the case. It's not worth your health. Okay, so that's my advice. Um, I think that there's been tremendous underinvestment across the resource sector. Um, I believe that we're in a secular bull market that's going to last at least to the end of this decade. And there will be cyclical periods of decline inside that secular. That's what happens in every bull market. So things don't go straight up and the market doesn't care what you want it to do. So that's about all I can say about it. I mean, I can sit here every week and tell you why the fluctuations and the squiggles on the, you know, that's what CNBC does. That's their, that's their bread and butter, you know, trying to find a reason for every squiggle on a chart. And I, I don't really do that here. So again, if you feel like that's copping out, then, you know, that's your view, but that's kind of, I've been fairly consistent saying this all along. Is there a period where I would change my view? Yeah. I mean, if we have a great financial crisis and the banks start failing and there's mass liquidations of homes and foreclosures and, you know, the economy starts going down the toilet, 
yeah, then oil's going to drop to, you know, $30 a barrel. I don't see that happening though. Okay. I think we're closer to the end of the, this particular liquidity tightening cycle than we are to the front end. And I think that what you're going to find is, is that, um, especially when we talk about the debt that's coming due, federal debt, that the Federal Reserve's got a real big challenge ahead of it over the next year, at least, and then to the next couple of years. So this can't go on for as long as some people, I think, think it can. All right, let's get into the news items for this week. Uh, so this is a perfect example, right? So, um, you know, India, or not India, but China is touted as the largest consumer of commodities. And for many commodities, it is copper. It's like 50% consumer. China's the largest oil importer. This is why, you know, if the reopening happens, like some folks think, then you will see a, a tremendous, uh, I think, change in, in uh, you know, the oil price. Now, that will take time to feed through, but I'm going to show you one of the things I'm looking at to uh, help gauge if that's really happening. But anyway, speaking about India, you know, nobody really talks about it. India's, I've, talk, I've said this before a couple of few times, you know, India is basically kind of where it is in its resource usage, basically where China was about 15 or 20 years ago. Um, you have this, I wouldn't get caught sleeping on India. I mean, I have in the portfolio, we have a method that we're playing the Indian market that's selling at about a 30% um, discount to net asset value and is run by one of the, or is associated, affiliated with one of the best investors in the world. And so I'm, I'm interested long-term in India. I think it has a lot of positive elements. You know, it has an emerging middle class of 400 million people and it's consistently growing, right? The economy is coming back from the recession or the uh, pandemic recession. And here's what we're seeing. You know, as an economy like this is expanding, this is what you're seeing, right? Indian fuel consumption rises by 10% year over year. India's fuel consumption, a proxy for oil demand, rose 10.2% year on year in November to 18.84 million tons. Sales of gasoline were 8% higher. Cooking gas, liquefied petroleum gas sales increased 5.2%, while naphtha sales fell. Sales of bitumen used for making roads rose 30%, while fuel edged up 8.4%. So basically, you know, as these economies grow, and this isn't the only economy, you know, it's hard to, you know, compensate for the drop that happened in China, but, you know, this is all happening in the background. This is why when you look at the BP historical uh, energy report they put out every year, you'll see with the exception of like four years, four or five years over the last 50 or 60 years, um, petroleum demand has increased, right? We can count on it increasing, you know, one to one and a half percent a year. And, uh, and, you know, you will have periods like during the pandemic where it was down or during the 2008 uh, great financial crisis was down, but it always rebounds, right? Because you have this ascent of man, you have rising living standards in these emerging markets. And this is all has to be, um, is incumbent upon increased fuel consumption, right? And uh, so this is why the long-term thesis I have around demand. And then of course, we, you already know our, our, our supply, lack of supply, um, what we think about that. So I think that even if you have a pullback and oil prices significant pullback, it's going to be short term. And I have no way of knowing if that's going to happen. I don't have a crystal ball. It could happen. Um, 
and then I would buy more. I mean, I do have uh, a pretty good cash reserve I keep. And I, uh, you know, just on a side note, one of the things I've been doing is using the Treasury Direct website. I mean, you're getting like 4% on T-bills right now. So, you know, they have the short-term T-bills. You can just go on there, link your bank account to the Treasury website, and you can buy these T-bills. Now, you buy them at a discount, right? So you put $10,000 in, I think is the minimum, and then you can get like the four-week T-bills, I think. It's the shortest duration, if I'm not mistaken. But you only, the $10,000 face value, you pay like 9930 or something like that. You buy it at a discount. That's the difference between the interest rate. And then you can just, it has an option there of, you know, if you want to roll them over, like how many times you want to roll this over. And so you can put like two weeks, three weeks, whatever, or, you know, periods, whatever you want to do, or you can just have none and then just go back to your account. You just go back and forth ACH, you know, back in the day, if you wanted to do that, you had to go to the federal reserve bank and fill out forms. And then they would send you a postcard in the mail. I remember this because my grandfather during the late seventies, when rates were real high, this is what he did. And they would just send you a postcard and you would just check it if you wanted to roll your bills over. So it's a good place because, you know, if you've got some good cash reserves and you're not getting good returns on a money market in your brokerage account, you can always put your money here. I mean, why take the risk in some stocks if you can get four over 4% in some T-bills right now? So short-term cash, uh, parking some cash. So that's another thing that people don't think about, you know, um, that they can do. I don't know. Like I said, I think there's minimums involved. You can't just put a hundred bucks in there, but, um, if you do have significant cash reserves and you're looking for higher returns, I mean, investigate it. You set up an account has two factor auth, you know, author, authorization, and then you can, you know, just do business directly with them. And it's a good place to park cash currently because, with, you know, if they're going to raise rates again, I think, you know, this month, then, you know, T-bill rates will go up even further. So um, something to look at just an aside. But anyways, this is, you know, don't, you know, just when I say China's down, but, you know, this India is, you know, has years and years of growth ahead of it. Indonesia, you know, all these places, Central Asian republics that nobody talks about then nobody even talks about Africa, you know, a billion people there that most of the people don't have access to reliable energy. So you have a pool of demand that's there that's not going away. And so if we've done insufficient supply, I mean, you have to look past this short-term price action that, you know, could be based just on liquidity and positioning of traders and things like that. That's not indicative of the longer-term story. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. And so here we go. You know, I like to follow total inventories uh, or inventories in the U.S., whatever. So this is the this year's inventories. This is for the world. Um, and total oil inventories. You see this blue channel is the five-year average. Um, this is 2021. And now we're 2022, we're below the five-year average. You can see we kind of have been going down over the whole year, but we kind of have leveled out here. Maybe that's another reason why, you know, the market's oversupplied maybe a little bit in the short term. Like I said, I think the Russians were stuffing the channels, getting as much oil into the market as possible before the sanctions. Um, 
we'll see. I, I, I don't, it's too complex of unknowns for me to analyze what's going to happen. We'll have to sit back and see. But um, again, you know, with recessions happening definitely in Europe and now in the U.S. probably entering recession, uh, you know, we're going to see maybe a pause. But then we're going to have the offsetting factor of, you know, this Chinese reopening. But we just don't know the extent or pace of that reopening. So uh, as long as I see this type of situation, if I saw this turning up now and heading back up, you, you know, that would be, that would be very bad, but you know, this is, you know, it's leveling off a little bit. We saw that happen here, right. In this period, it's kind of similar. So I think, you know, the, the draws you like last, the last couple of weeks, we've had pretty significant draws in, uh, in the U S on oil, but you've seen product builds and then people get nervous about that. They say, well, if gasoline and diesel, uh, inventories are building up and that's bad but well, i think people are missing the point on that a lot of that's being exported right to europe and other places remember we went over that uh, chart several weeks ago where we showed uh, all of the refining capacity that had been shut down around the world and now with the um self-imposed sanctions that the eu has put on russia they're not getting the same oil and refined products they were getting so they're having to draw them in from other places so um, you really have to take all this into consideration when you just say, okay, well, um, oil inventories were down, crude inventories were down, but products were up. So that shows you that, you know, the demand's starting to slip, but we don't really know how much of that's being exported, right? We showed another chart like last week where total amount of petroleum products in the U.S. exports are at a record high. So that should tell you where a lot of that's going. And like I said, we're at, you know, we're at the end of the year, people are kind of packing it in. Uh, and so I think, you know, liquidity and the amount of action you have there in a lot of these markets is, is, is kind of shrinking up, right? So then you get more exacerbated moves. So this is, uh, I'll put a link to this. This is a uh, website you can go to and you can check all the flight data for various countries. Um, I got this off Twitter. Josh Young put this out there. Uh, this is just like one data point you can check. Like I'm checking like, I mean, any country you can check, right? They have all the countries there, Brazil, the United States, various European countries. And so, of course, you have, you know, 2019 pre-pandemic, you know, 2020 during the pandemic, you see how much it dropped off in China and then came back. And then the uh, 2021 and then here's 2022 we're significantly below even last last year and then forget about you know prior to the pandemic so this would be interesting to watch if this slowly starts creeping up over time and uh this would indicate that things really are it'd be one data point to look at that things are opening up and you're seeing more um you know flight activity people moving around china now i had I can't remember who the um, podcaster was I was listening to, um, but he was positing that his view was you're not going to see the same amount of overseas travel by Chinese going forward uh, because of the government clampdowns and stuff like that, that the view wasn't really that the government was clamping down because of COVID. They were clamping, they were using it as an excuse to kind of control some of the political situation in China. So I don't know. I don't have an opinion on it. I'm just going to look at the data here. I think this is something you can track. I was also looking for, 
I think there's another website. I wasn't able to find it though. That shows the traffic, like in the major cities in China, I used to be like on TomTom, Tom, that GPS. I don't know if that's available anymore, but I was searching around last night, trying to find some traffic data uh, in China real time and see if that's increasing over time. So we'll have to see if, you know, I, like I said, I think the reopening in China is going to be in fits and starts, but you know, if you even get back to, you know, a lot of analysts have said with the lockdowns, that's two and a half to 3 million barrels of demand in China. That's, you know, on the shelf. If you even get half that back, then, you know, you're going to be in, you know, a problem. And if you get closer back to normal, uh, the closer you get back to normal, the more pressure it's going to put on the world um, on supply around the world. So we'll have to see. Um, we'll have to see if it's actually happening. This is, and I'll put a link to this website. But you can go to other countries too and check out what's going on there. You'll note that many countries still aren't back to their pre-pandemic levels. They're close, but they're not quite there. So I found that interesting also. You'll see like uh, in India, they're pretty close back to their pre-pandemic, places like Brazil, the U.S., but there's not that many countries that have actually exceeded the pre-pandemic uh, amount of flights. So that I found that very interesting also. But like I said, um, if you have any other data points that we can kind of look at for, you know, demand in China that we can track in real time or let's, you know, small lags. I think that would be helpful for everyone because that will help us really figure out what's really going on. And if the government's following through on its uh, rhetoric. So I wanted to put this up too, you know, when we talk about oil production growth and we talk about the price of oil, um, well, it's going to go down to 50 or 40. I mean, some pundits have said that, analysts or whatever, because of the recession. One thing you have to keep in mind is the break-evens per basin, right? And this is from JP Morgan. Uh, it's a tweet this week. I find it interesting because you have the you know large um, basins like the Midland, Eagleford, Bakken, uh, the Scoop Stack, which is in Oklahoma, near Oklahoma City. Look at the price break-evens have increased over over the years, and especially this year. Why? Because, like I said, you've had such atrophy in the oil field services sector that if you want to crank up production now or crank up your drilling program, the same amount of equipment and men or people and tools and all that stuff is not where it used to be. So prices have really went up, and we've seen that in the analysis and the reporting that several of the oil field services companies that we have in the portfolio uh, have shown that uh, price inflation, lack of labor, costs have went up, but they've been able to raise prices sufficiently to compensate for that and to, uh, and to have their margins go up. So most of the holdings that we have, we're seeing margin expansion in the oil field services companies that we hold in the portfolio. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that, yes, you can have prices go down to 60 or 50 or whatever on WTI, but you're not going to see a lot of drilling and you're going to see, you know, those decline rates for many of these fields are fairly significant, right? They're, you know, 30, 40, 50% a year or more in some of these areas. And so if you're in a situation where oil drops to, 
you know, 50 or $45 a barrel. I mean, for most of these fields, now it's not every well, but just in general, people aren't going to drill at a loss. Okay. And if they can't make a decent return, you know, they're not just going to drill at like in the Eagleford at $60 a barrel just to break even. Um, they may drill a minimum amount of wells to hold their lease. A lot of leases have provisions that you have to drill in a certain amount of time. So they may do that, but you're not going to see supply increase with prices getting closer now to the break-evens of many of these um, of these fields. Now, conversely, if you have activity begin to slow down, prices will come down too. So like, again, these are, these are market dynamics, right? But this is, this is telling you that we're getting close to those break-evens. And as people start thinking about allocating capital for their drilling programs, you know, they may want to hold off. They may say, well, you know, instead of we we're going to bring three rigs on, but we're going to bring one on now or whatever, we're going to drill so you know, X amount of wells, but we're going to pull back on that and see what happens. Okay. So this is the point that I'm trying to make here. Um, the break-even prices are quite a bit higher than I think a lot of people think. And another thing that factors into this is a lot of the juicy, most productive areas have already been drilled. So now you're starting to get into areas where the production and exploration is more challenging and the the fruit of your labor is not as great. So you're getting past those so-called tier one low-hanging fruit into the uh, lower productive areas of the particular fields, which increases the costs because you just, you know, if you're spending the same or more money to drill a well and you're only getting, you know, 80 or 75% of what you had gotten before out of these wells from, you know, then your, your, your costs are going to go up and your ability to recover your capital and make a return is lowered. So I think you have to take this into consideration also. So I thought this was interesting. You know, I have the view that this multipolar world is moving forward. Uh, I don't endorse that it will be better or worse for people in the world. You know, I don't really know. Um, I'm just stating what I think is going to happen. Uh, the global south and global east is not enamored with the U.S. dominated rules-based order. No one knows what these rules are. They seem to change based on whims of the United States and its allies. But uh, these people, when I say in the east and south, the BRICS countries, China, um, Russia, India, I mean, even now, you know, you had this big visit where Xi Jinping, this is his first visit since the pandemic overseas, and he went to Saudi Arabia. And so this is just a, 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 a clip from, you know, something that was said there. Xi Jinping proposes that China will make full use of the Shanghai oil gas trading center platform to carry out yawn settlement of oil and gas trade. So this is, you know, my one of the views that I have is that the United States empire is a paper tiger. It's based on the dominance of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, and that is enforced mafia style by the U.S. military around the world. If you like Gaddafi, when he was proposing a gold based dinar, well, he was taken out uh, when you had uh, Saddam Hussein talking about something similar. Uh, moving away from selling oil for dollars, he was taken out. So there can be no challenge allowed towards the dollar hegemony 
the use of the US dollar as the main reserve currency around the world. Because if you do, um, because the US system is a debt-based system and it's so over-indebted um, that if you don't use the US dollar and the dollar's value goes down substantially, then you're going to wreck and destroy the living standards of the United States, would totally transform economically and socially the United States very quickly, by the way. I mean, you're almost in a situation here in the United States of an emerging market. And it's being propped up with this US dollar strength that uh, um, is slowly being chipped away. And this is what I think a lot of the angst and animosity and the conflict that's happening around the world. I've said this before, these countries have now grown up. They're not front, you know, India is not a frontier market anymore. China is not an emerging market anymore, okay? And they don't want to be dictated to anymore. And there's a history there. I mean, these places were, um, had colonial uh, governments and they were exploited and people don't forget that. That was only a couple few generations ago. And in China's case, you know, when you get into um, some of these other cultural things that I'm not even an expert on, but I just have a superficial understanding of, they have, you know, a very view of themselves and a long history, and they are not, they want to throw off the shackles. They don't want to be dictated to by the United States. They want to do things that are in their interests, okay, not in the interest of the United States. They don't care about the living standards of the people of the United States. Now, I think that a lot of, and if that means that, you know, this is a challenge to that. This isn't something that's going to happen in a week or two, but we've been talking about this and many other analysts have been talking about us. You're chipping away at the dollar hegemony, okay? You're chipping away. That doesn't mean that I think that the renminbi or the yuan, whatever you want to call the Chinese currency is going to become the reserve currency in the next year or two. But what you're seeing is the multipolar world is continuing to form and these blocks in the East and in the global South are growing. You know, you're going to expect to see, I think, over the next year, countries like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, maybe even some other countries in, in the GCC, Gulf Cooperation, uh, are going to be making bids to join some of these um, other organizations like the BRICS and the SCO and things like that, because it's in their interest to do that. Okay. And uh, they're not going to be dictated to. I mean, I, I've shown several times now the uh, Indian energy minister be, you know, try to, where journalists have tried to put him on the spot interviews about buying Russian crude. And he said, very simple, I have 1.4 billion consumers and I'm going to, that require a certain amount of energy and we're going to supply that and we don't care who we get it from. That's not my, the, the problems that are happening in Europe are not the problems of India. So, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, these places were emerging or frontier markets and you could dictate to them. You could sanction them. You could force them or bend their will. And they realize now that you can't do that anymore. And I think is that's, these areas are going to get more emboldened. These people and these organizations are going to become more and further emboldened. Um, and what's the U.S. going to do? Just run around and sanction 85% of the globe? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. And so um, we need to watch things like this. This is a very important meeting that the first overseas meeting that the leader of China took was to Saudi Arabia. That should tell you something, okay? And then this is, you know, they're going to make full use of this system that they've set up over the last few years. You know, you couple this with the growth, let's say I mentioned last week of 
um, the decoupling from the U.S. is very difficult because it was built up and because it was the hegemon for decades that a lot of people did take their, you know, excess dollars, invest them in treasuries. Now they're trying to extract, extricate themselves from this. And so this is, needs to be watched, this development of this and more and more countries. And I think you're going to see some announcements next year where many countries or not many, but several high profile countries are going to start joining these blocks in the East and global South. So um, that will be interesting to see how the U.S. reacts to that. We'll also be interested to see the disposition and outcome of this particular situation uh, in Ukraine, because basically the EU and the U.S. are all in on this. And as Jens Stoltenberg said, if the, U if the EU doesn't, if they don't come out on top, it's a problem. It's going to be a problem to hold the EU and NATO together. Um, so they're all, every, this is all in. So um, you're seeing this, what I have said, this empire in decline, the U.S. I mean, if you want to talk about this, they just, the Congress just approved an $858 billion defense budget for this, for the next year. $858 billion defense budget. I mean, that, to defend against what? Who's attacking us? <laughs> so, I mean, this is an offensive budget. This is a budget to have what's perceived as this ability to project power to defend the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. I, you know, a lot of people say I'm nuts or that's a conspiracy. I'm just telling you that that makes sense. If the U.S. dollar is not the reserve currency, what does that mean for the U.S.? Ask yourself that question. What happens to the value of the dollar in an economy that's has over 100% GDP of debt, federal debt, not to mention state and local debt, not to mention private sector debt, and not to mention anywhere from 150 to $200 trillion in unfunded liabilities. You think the dollar is strong in that environment? And what happens if the dollar decreases, if it's not the hegemon, if it's not the reserve currency, it goes down 50 or 75% over a period of five or 10 years? What does that do to the living standards of people in the United States? So this is why I think, you know, I'm bullish on gold longer term. Um, the options that the U.S. and these indebted Western European countries have, these OECD countries have, are shrinking as the ability to manage these problems. And uh, I'm not going to get off into conspiracy land and why, you know, they're doing the things they're doing to try to get themselves out of this. But um, this is a news that's happening. And this is part of the path to eventual decoupling of most of the world from the U.S. dollar. And the U.S. does not want that. So I think uh, this is another important thing. You know, we talked about peak ESG a couple months ago. Um, I think we're seeing more of that now. Uh, people understand that it's not really that profitable. <laughs> Here's what happens, folks. You have something like the Inflation Reduction Act. Solar, wind, go out there and do all these projects, blah, blah, blah. The problem is, is that if there's a certain amount of companies that want to have a renewable component, if there's a certain amount of states that have these requirements or whatever, what happens is, is that because, like I told you, I went to the solar convention in California a couple months ago, and it was like, you know, 
boomtown, right? It was like Deadwood. The money was flowing. Everybody was excited. But the problem is all of this massive amounts of misallocated capital now are running towards this because it's a new gold rush, right? The problem is, is that if you're somebody like Amazon that wants to have um, a certain amount of solar component for your operations, let's say, and you put an RFP out or request for a proposal or request for a quote for, I want a hundred megawatts of solar. Okay. If you have one or two people doing this a couple of years ago, then, you know, the pricing is not going to be as competitive as if you have 10 or 20 people now bidding on it. This is what happened in wind. When we originally started, you know, the RFPs were being signed at, you know, 40, $50 a megawatt. And then I saw, you know, as this thing went on, you had more players come in because of this is what happens, right? You're, you have government subsidizing, providing 30% tax credits and all these other things. Financial engineering draws in all this misallocation of capital and then prices collapse. And that's why, you know, you see like none of the wind companies, um, manufacturers of wind products, they're not profitable. GE, Siemens, Gamesa, Vestas, they're all saying that they're going to, they're having problems. Uh, they're laying people off and the same thing's going to happen because, this is not a real business that has a real demand for the most part. Yes, in some locations, it makes sense, but not to what we're trying to do now. And so the returns just aren't going to be there uh, because everybody runs for this gold rush. And if you have an excess of supply of projects or people that want to do projects, then the buyer on the other side doesn't have to pay $40 a megawatt. He'll say, well, this person's going to offer me a PPA at this or are lower and lower and, th and then there's more options and so the price goes down and so if your price for your megawatt sold goes down then you are starting to look at your capital costs it, you know it doesn't it's not free to build these plants and so you start looking at well o and m uh, how, what's my real margin on this and the margins just begin to shrink and i think that's what blackrock and now vanguard are figuring out and so here's another article uh vanguard which is a major asset management company have trillions of dollars under management quits climate alliance and blow to net zero project vanguard is pulling out of the main financial alliance on tackling climate change at a time when republicans in the u.s have stepped up their attacks on financial institutions that they are say are hostile to fossil fuels um i don't think that's that's part of it but it's not all of it with seven trillion dollars under management more than 30 million customers as of october 31st Vanguard is the second largest global money manager after BlackRock. The group said on Wednesday that it was resigning from the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, whose members have committed to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050. This is a quote from them. We have decided to withdraw from the Net Zero um, Asset Manager Initiative so that we can provide the clarity our investors desire about the role of index funds and about how we think about material risks, including climate related risks. And to make clear that Vanguard speaks independently on matters of importance to our investors. And so you do have pressure from like Florida and Texas, and there'll be more because, you know, um, and this is part of a vibrant, should be part of a vibrant democracy. If, you know, we don't agree with your woke situation in the state of Florida, then we're not going to allow you to ma manage our pension fund if you're going to persist in this woke agenda. That's part of it. And part of it is, you know, they want the flexibility because the returns are not what people think they are. Okay. It's going to, and it's going to get, it's a crowded field. 
and there's a lot of supply coming on. There's everybody and his brother is hanging out a shingle saying they're a solar or wind developer. And that makes costs for projects go down. So um, I think that has a lot to do with it. But I think this is, you know, a part of that peak ESG we're starting to see, right? We're starting to see a trend develop, right? So um, uh, two big money managers um, are, you know, moving away from the zeal that they had originally because I think they realized that the gold rush isn't, it's a more of a mirage. So I wanted to talk about this um, in the context of Cameco's Westinghouse um, acquisition, which I think long-term is probably a good idea. And we're seeing the same thing at Kaz Enemprom. Again, if you look at the actual businesses in uranium and the nuclear field, I mean, there's really, like I said before, probably only a couple few investable companies, um, unless you, you know, once liquidity returns, I think the uranium stock juniors are going to fly. Guys, we're in a we're in a tightening liquidity situation, which we've been in since the, you know, world central banks are almost all of them are tightening liquidity. So um, the ability for a rising tide is not there. So I think that eventually this reverses itself probably sometime next year as far as um, the tightening cycle being over and then a new um, easing cycle. And as liquidity comes back, a lot of this stuff's going to fly. Uh, the juniors, I, that is what I'm talking about. But long term, again, I'm looking at this from a business perspective. Nuclear power is the um, is the answer. It's being recognized around the world and it's going to continue to grow. It's the answer to, um, you know, getting out of a coal. You know, we're going to need that coal to turn into liquid fuels at some point. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole process of how to make, you know, you can go look at the company in South Africa, Sasol, that converts coal to liquids and other products, but you're going to need, you know, you, you're going to need more liquid fuels because the supply of, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to go from 100 million barrels a day of supply of oil in the world to 120 or 125 million barrels if the trends in the emerging and frontier markets continue. And so, anyways, getting back to this slide, Kaz Adamprom, you know, they're just digging uranium out of the ground and selling it. But, you know, like Cameco has done now or has done in the past, uh, doing value-added things, producing, um, in this case, what I call moving up the value chain. So it says a Kazakh-Chinese joint venture has made its first delivery of fuel assemblies to nuclear power stations in China, uranium giant Kaz Adamprom has said. In December 7th statement, Kaz Adamprom said 30 tons of low-enriched uranium had been sent by rail in the form of nuclear fuel assemblies to China where they had been received by their end user, the China General Nuclear Power Corporation. Uh, the CEO of Kaz Adamprom was quoted in the statement as saying, the delivery had affirmed the reputation of Kaz Adamprom as a reliable and preferred supplier in the global, global nuclear fuel market. So um, as from a business perspective, that's what you wanna see, right? And I think this kind of uh, is the thinking around what Cameco is thinking when it bought the Westinghouse uh, business that there is going to be long-term growth in the nuclear power and you you want to capture you don't want to just be a mining company digging your you know mining's a horrible business you want to be in that whole value chain and be able to capture 
what I think is going to be multi-decade uh, transition to nuclear power around the world. So I found this amusing. Um, I guess part of the whole schizophrenic lack of an energy policy in Great Britain, uh, where you have Rishi Sunak now and the previous conservative governments flailing all over the place. But I guess they're, uh, the UK is allowing for the opening of its first deep coal mine in 30 years. And of course, the environmentalists are going nuts. And this is just, uh, you know, this is another manifestation of not having a well thought out long-term energy policy, okay? And that needs to incorporate multiple fuels as we as then you transition to more of a nuclear, in my view. That would be what I would be looking for. But this is just uh, from the environmentalists, they went completely nuts. And this kind of in indicates to me of their belief, you know, almost of religious fervor that they have uh, for this whole climate change situation. And there's some uh, statements from the uh, article, which I'll put a link to. The levels of anger and frustration across the green movement are unprecedented and with good reason. And they have some quotes here. An incomprehensible act of self-harm. The UK's climate credibility on the world stage is in tatters. Like celebrating the opening of a Betamax factory. That's a good one, actually. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Those are just a tiny fraction of the furious responses to the government's decision to approve plans for the UK's first new deep coal mine in 30 years. There are plenty more, a fair few, few of which are not fit to print. Perhaps angriest of all was the Climate Change Committee, which pulled no punches in its assessment of a, quote, very bad decision supporting a technology of the past with a very poor pros prospectus for new UK jobs, unquote. This decision undermines UK efforts towards net zero, said CCC Chief Executive Chris Stark. It is counter to the UK's aims as COP26 president, and it sends entirely the wrong signal to other countries about our climate change priorities. Sadly, the UK's global influence on climate is greatly diminished by today's decision. So again, this is a religion for some people. It's a belief system. Um, I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to argue this anymore. Uh, I don't really care. You need a certain amount of BTUs, inputs, kilowatts, however you want to measure it, energy inputs into a system to keep the system functioning. If you don't have that, then uh, the system will begin to deteriorate, i.e. your living standards will go down. And I think that that's starting to be realized now by normal people that are sitting there in, in the EU and many other places around the world, because now as energy prices have went up, um, people are wondering why this is and why we're wetting ourselves to this policy. The policy of saying that you're going to transition from relatively cheap, easy to use, ubiquitous forms of energy into intermittent high cost energy systems that cannot replace the existing energy systems uh, will lead to higher costs. And eventually um, the realization, you know, the wake up call happens. And it doesn't matter how much money you spend as we saw in Germany, they spent half a trillion dollars and they have done nothing around, they're burning more coal than they have burned in the past as they shut down nuclear reactors. That's just a total mess. So you have to have a rational energy policy that focuses on the welfare of the people and can balance uh, environmental situations. Like I've talked about, I mean, the amount of 
controls that you can put on coal burning now um, make it relatively, uh, you know, it's not that significant of the pollution. Yes, you have to get, deal with the ash and stuff like that. It's not the best deal. I think you should use nuclear, but, um, you know, if your argument is that CO2 is going to destroy the earth, then I don't think you're going to, people are backing away from that. People are starting to, when I say people, the majority of people, uh, not the fringe is backing away from that, you know, that previous naive acceptance of that is going away. And we've seen that even in, you know, now two major investment firms are kind of backing away from this. They're not going to come out and poo-poo it and be negative about it. They're going to use wordsmith it, but they're not going to put any money into it. And so this is all what you would expect of, you know, uh, somebody that has a belief system that's being, you know, challenged or harmed, how they react emotionally uh, with some of these um, statements being made. So um, I think, the sh you know, it doesn't matter if, if people in the West want to continue down this path. The, like I said, the global East and South is not going to pursue these policies. And there's no, I mean, what are they going to do? Is the EU and the US going to sanction people if they don't? build more wind turbines. I don't see how that works. I mean, they're just marginalizing themselves into these little bubbles that are going to just slowly decay over time with living standards going down and influence around the world going down. That, that's my view. Energy is everything. It's the only thing that matters, quite frankly. Um, if you don't have energy security, you know, when energy rhetoric and, you know, this kind of stuff comes up against energy security, uh, Again, when politics meets physics, physics wins. So I wanted to talk about this in the context of the, uh, I think this might be, no, I got two, two slides. Um, in the context of uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing, and I've been looking around, I found an article, I'll put a link to it. You know, with rates going up as much as they have, this puts a burden on the federal debt. And I was curious as to what was the term term of the debt. So how soon does this debt start to roll over or has to be refinanced? Because we had this period for the last 10 years, at least, or since the last great financial crisis, or since 2008, whatever, where we had this massively low, record low interest rates. So we allowed many countries, the US included, to have substantially higher debt because your interest costs were lower, right? So you could, your ability to carry more debt. We've seen that with consumers. You saw that in the housing markets, right? As interest rates went down, your ability to buy a bigger house or more expensive house, whether it had value that's immaterial for this conversation, uh, increased. So you had the ability to carry more debt because your interest payments are less. And so that's going to reverse now. And what I was wondering about is like, okay, all this 30, 28, $30 trillion in debt that the U.S. has, when does it start to roll over? When does it need to be refinanced? Because refinancing at one or one and a half percent is different than having to refinance at 4.2%, okay? And so what we find, in the, at least in this article, which I'll put a link to, is... Um, what we find is that a third of the federal debt has to be real, rolled over next year. So a third of 28 trillion is what? Uh, seven, eight, $9 trillion. 
So if you have to roll $9 trillion over, do you do it in short-term T-bills, bonds? I mean, the Treasury looks at this and has to gauge where they think rates are going and try to spread that risk out because you don't want to you don't want to be in a situation where, you know, if you put it all in 30 or 10 year bonds and sell that to 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 roll your debt over into, first of all, um, you're locked into a higher rate and it makes your interest payments go up. And so with this chart is, and what I think is in the next three years, this is the way I understand the article, I may be misspeaking, but in, within the next three years, we have to roll over that entire debt. And so this idea that we're just going to have rates at this higher level for longer doesn't make any sense. Who's going to buy these bonds? I mean, you have to roll over eight or nine trillion dollars next year at what? And, you know, rates are at four, four and a half percent. Okay. So nine trillion dollars at four percent a year is what? You know, I mean, do the math. And so what you're seeing here is this chart shows you basically interest payments on government debt as a share of federal spending and have the percent over here. And you see how low it was. Over the last, you know, basically 20 years, it was actually trending down recently as rates were basically making record lows, generational lows. And you were at, you know, under 6% of um, federal spending for just the interest. And so what's going to happen now, these are projections that have been made, you know, black being the actual number. And then here's your forecast. You know, in January 2020, you had a forecast here. And in February 21, you had the forecast here. And now with rates where they are now in May, or at least in May 22, this was a forecast in May of 22, which this is even worse now because the rates are even higher. You see that, you know, they're forecasting by 2030 interest rates are good. Interest as a percent of federal spending is going to double. And so this view that over the next three years or even the next year that they can have these higher rates and then forces the treasury into, you know, do you take the risk and roll the debt over with more short-term debt with the idea that you can roll it in a couple of years again at a lower rate because we're going to go through another, uh, you know, easing cycle? Do you, or do you spread the risk out and then you have to, then you end up locking in some higher payments because, I mean, this is a big deal. And this is something I was wondering about, and I, I stumbled upon this chart. So I think it's very interesting to watch this and see what they're going to do. And if this article is correct that I got this chart from, that they have to roll a third of the debt over next year in 2023, I mean, that's eight or nine trillion dollars of debt that has to be rolled. Who's going to buy that when you have the rest of the world now trying to decouple and sell off? Uh, it's doesn't want to be buying U.S. debt, doesn't want to be holding U.S. dollars, doesn't want to be encumbered by the U.S. because, you know, the U.S. continues to, you know, fumble, stumble, bum along and not solve its internal problems. Um, it's demonstrated that it's a bad actor, that if it doesn't like what you will do, it'll confiscate your assets, okay, um, with no legal precedent there. Uh, and so why would you want to be involved with the United States? And this is why you're seeing things like, you know, the slowly but surely foreign people, especially act countries in the East and West, this is ties even back into that previous conversation about the decoupling from the U S and decoupling from the U S dollar. So, um, this bears watching. And it also tells me that we're closer to the end of the rate raising cycle than we are 
to the beginning uh, and this idea that's going to be longer, higher for longer doesn't make any sense with the amount of debt that has to be rolled. It just doesn't compute. I could be wrong. I, I, I just don't see that that is how it's going to happen. So I think that you're going to see a, you know, you're going to see like 50 basis points this month. And I think the next meeting is in February. And then you're going to start seeing language around how we're getting close to where we are going to start walking things back and preparing for a pause. And then eventually the next easing cycle, which probably happens later in 2023, as the economy continues to deteriorate in the US. And if it completely starts coming apart, which, you know, like I said, you're showing ISM readings and purchasing manager index readings that were similar to 2008 GFC and the pandemic, you're getting down into the 30s, high 30s, heading for the mid 30s. Uh, that usually precipitates a change in Fed policy, but then you still have you know, inflation fairly high because owner equivalent rent, which is a major component of their index, uh, takes a while to roll over. So we'll see. Uh, like I said, they have a lot of plates in the air, but this idea that they're going to, unless you put the economy into a deep recession close to a depression, I don't think how, I don't see how you get back to two percent, and people won't stand for it. They the reaction, um, I think that you're going to see a a higher acceptable inflation rate, like four, you know, four maybe even five percent, and then they'll figure out a way to explain it to you so it's acceptable. But uh, the debt is a problem, and it continues to grow. Like I said before, you're spending $858 billion on defense. They call it defense. It's offense to maintain that uh, racket, that dollar racket around the world and U.S. interests. So um, that's part of the problem. Your entitlements are part of the problem. You know, I wrote that article five years ago, um, kind of using the lyrics from that Blue Oyster Cult song, Don't Fear the Reaper, another 10,000 coming every day. We have another 10,000 people going on Social Security and Medicare every day, okay, as baby boomers continue to retire. And um, they have an expectation that they'll be paid. They feel that they paid into it and they need to be paid. And so that's why you have this $100 trillion or more of, you know, there's no lockbox with that money in it. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure, I think, on the and, – and these are intractable problems because – like I said, the way that the election, the way that our system is set up, there's no incentive on a two-year election cycle of a congressman to come in there and say, yeah, you have some kook like uh, Ron Paul that would talk about this stuff all the time, but nobody's going to vote to reduce these budgets. As a matter of fact, we saw this again on this defense budget thing. I hate to harp on it. It's just in the news this week that the Congress actually increased it by like $45 billion more than the administration requested. So these people just don't get it. And, and they're not incentivized. People respond to incentives. Why should you, you know, you're getting donations. Again, I talked about how funny it was when I was in DC and you're driving to the airport and I'm looking over there across the river, I think it was Arlington, and you see the Raytheon building and all these contractors and lobbyists and all this stuff. I mean, I mean, figure it out. Okay, that that's why it does, it's not going to change until the thing, uh, the wheels come off. So we'll have to watch this and see where it goes. But uh, longer term, you know, I don't see why you, you're not bullish on, you know, gold longer term. This is why I advocate for holding five to 10 percent physical gold 
uh, as an insurance policy against U.S. government and Federal Reserve malfeasance. So here's Felix Zuloff. I'll put an, a link to this uh, interview. He's one of my favorite guys to listen to. He's kind of saying a lot of the things that we've been talking about as far as this um, move away from as the world kind of moves into this multipolar situation, what that means, what the implications of that are. It's not all one way. You know, He, I think he shows the chart, not in this video, but in the article that it, accompanies it that same chart where I showed like in 2020 the major or 20 or 2000 major trading partners being the majority of the U.S. now 2020 the majority China talking about that talking about this decoupling if you will and this uh, emergence of this multipolar world also some of the other challenges he also talks about uh, he's a good analyst I think you get an opportunity this guy gets paid a lot of money uh, by a, a lot of high net worth individuals so if you get a chance to listen to it's 40 minutes uh, I would suggest you uh, take a listen. He's, uh, like I said, he's pretty, um, he's pretty good analyst. Uh, I've been following him for years. Okay, guys, uh, that's it for this week. Um, I appreciate the uh, support. Like I said, uh, we had this big surge in viewership uh, last week. Uh, video last week was over 5,000 views. Um, again, I appreciate your comments. Uh, appreciate the support. If you want to support our channel, I always say that the best way to support it is just to like and share the videos or comment. Um, if you are interested in understanding how we uh, transfer this analysis that we do uh, into actionable uh, investment themes, then please consider a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. There is a link in the show notes if you are so disposed uh, to that. Uh, the other uh, thing is that uh, next week I will be coming, I'm reinventing, I think I mentioned it last week, I'm bringing back the stock of the year pick. We already put it out, I put it out in the newsletter for subscribers to have first crack at it. Again, this is a speculative company that has the potential to double next year. I did this as a past, as a goof, uh, when I had uh, you know previous blogs and I had a stretch of about three or four years where we're pretty successful doing it. Uh, obviously, I'm using it as a marketing tool, but I'll be announcing that next week. So watch the video next week for that. Uh, that's going to be free. You know, occasionally I do drop names out here. Uh, you know, we had some pretty good success on our public company companies that we publicly shared with folks via the via the videos, Athabasca, Oil Sands, Schlumberger, Caledonia Mining. All of these did fairly well. Uh, when we announced them and then we sold them. So uh, look forward to that next week uh, as an example of the type of companies that uh, uh, speculative type situations that we occasionally entertain in the newsletter. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, we hope to see you next week. Have a good week. Have a good day and a rest of the weekend.